So it was like 70 hours ago, we were tucking into our, our nice warm teepee tent with the wood stove on. It was raining pretty hard out and it was getting windy, but we were tucking in for the night and we were going to do a podcast on, you know, planning to stay dry in the backcountry. And we had just laid out the, all the podcast uh, mics and cables. And then all of a sudden that gu- first major gust hit. And the next thing you knew, the podcast machine was piled up in the corner in a ball of wires and everybody was up with their clothes on. Um, yeah, <laughs> went from laying around in our long underwear in our sleeping bags to like stuffing our, yeah, getting up, putting our clothes on, stuffing our sleeping bags back into our dry bags to keep them dry. And then we were like, okay, no podcast. We got to get to action. And that sort of state of alertness and anxiety and like um, awareness uh, has lasted until about now. Like we've been all been on point to try and make sure that we're doing everything we can to ensure that we don't have a failure because uh, the margin for error here is just so incredibly low. Like if if we, we just, we, we may not get out for four or five more days. And if we're wet, soaked, busted gear, failed gear, we could be in an emergency situation that we can't do nothing about. Hey folks, welcome to the Wild Podcast. Um, we're uh, we're caribou cutting through we're on top of a mountain in the Cassiars next to a lake. And uh, yeah, we have a little time for a podcast since we've been laying around in our tent for the last 48 hours. How, when did the storm hit? It's Friday, August 16th. Hours. Oh, so how many hours? 72. 72 hours of? 72 this evening. Oh, by this evening, we'll be tent bound for 72 hours. So I'm sitting here with uh, Alex, our movie man, and Clay, our writer, and uh, Ryan, my, my, my work partner and hunting partner. And, um, and yeah, I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk a little bit about um, surviving somewhat of uh, surviving weather in the backcountry. Because uh, we had this trip, we had all kinds of plans to do some hunting and uh, maybe get some footage and maybe tell some stories using Alex's talents as a, as a filmmaker and Clay's talents as a writer. And um, yeah, we certainly had some unexpected weather that was uh, that we're just coming out of now that I, you know, quite honestly, like, I think had we not had our, had we not planned accordingly and, and, and had our shit together, I think we would have, um, I don't know, right. Would, what on the, on, from your experience as a ranger, if, uh, if you were trying to survive this without the proper equipment, what are the, ch- the chances of survival of the past? Uh, I think the past pretty past few days would have been pretty dire if we didn't have our shit together for sure. Yeah, totally. There is a point here where we were having to, um, we we have this eight man teepee tent from from the Seek Seek I think it's called yeah the Seek Outdoors group and uh, it's a pretty cool system because you can get you know four people around a little wood stove with a teepee system and it's a waterproof shelter concept which was awesome for the first bunch of days because it was uh, with a bit of rain on and off but for the most part we had the tent but we were sleeping in there and the, the wood go wood stove going to dry out at the end of the day um, but when the winds hit and the winds and snow hit us um, a couple of days ago, and it was gusting up to. I mean, we, you know, we don't actually have a measurement, but you know, spend enough time on the water, I know wind fair enough. Like, 
I think it was consistent blowing 50 with gusts of 70 and possibly possibly more at times and the tent itself was like kind of has a fairly big surface area on the windward side so it was picking up a lot of wind and turning into a bit of a sail so um i think what what was the first sort of we had one big blowout right right and then you kind of yeah we had we had it guide out pretty good uh right from initial setup but uh when the wind started to really pick up we had one sort of initial side of the tent lift up and you sort of dove and grabbed it and we realized we better get out there and, and do a bit more work and got dressed and got out into the snow. The blizzard had just sort of started at that point and just started getting boulders and rocks and heavy stuff to start weighing down the edge of the tent so it just wouldn't lift up on us again and getting every guy line and tieable portion of the tent tied down. We already we had already done that with the anticipation that we, you know, that we were getting some weather. We we pegged everything down and guy lined off every eye off this tent back to a big rock. Yeah. But I think our second round was, after we had the first blowout, you went and got rocks. Put them on every peg that was buried in the ground. Yeah, and that brought sort of the seal of the tent right down to the to the ground, which eliminated any air or wind kind of coming under the tent, which was a, which was a good play, I think. And then you guys grabbed extra tent pegs and then pegged from inside of the tent because there's actually a second set of eyes on the the inside of this tent all the way around which was super helpful as well yeah and then so then the the, the next job was when the winds that are really hammering we we tied um we had to hold the center pole from from bending it was actually bending right over an arc and we we weren't sure if the thing would would snap and if, if that snapped then the whole everything would come down on top of us so we were a little bit uh well the one job was just to hold the center pole of the tent up and then the other job was we tied a couple of uh, guy lines right to the inside of the peak of the roof. There's a couple of eyes up there to basically hold the tent down. So we spent about half the night, or yeah, we spent that first night just taking turns. We set, we actually set up one. Okay, so right, take us through your thinking. So at this point, we got we're sort of still sleeping in inside the teepee tent with a very high risk of the whole teepee tent getting blown away and us being exposed to uh blizzard at, with you know like i said 50 to 70 kilometer hour winds possibly gusting more um what were your thoughts then yeah i think that was sort of that was about at 11 o'clock at night when the stovepipe blew out and landed on my sleeping bag and burnt my sleeping bag we had to deal with that emergency decided to make the so call. so just just so people know what that means so we, we've got this little titanium stove which has been a godsend to keep us you know drying out in between our hunts and then we still had it going on the, which was probably a mistake but we had we, we had loaded it up for bedtime and then the winds kicked on so we couldn't we were kind of waiting for it to go out so we could then pull the stovepipe down and deal with it but so we were just waiting it out and then the actual stovepipe itself um uh just jumped right out of got blown the stovepipe got blown kind of up uh with the wind it kind of sort of took it halfway out the tent and then the whole then the thing came back down with gravity and then landed on top of ryan's sleeping bag um and of course it's like you know super hot titanium pipe so it's melting his sleeping bag uh, in between his legs and then we were sort of looking for some type of non-meltable material to grab the stovepipe and pull it out from ryan's sleeping bag so I had my leather gloves somewhat handy and grabbed them and was able to handle the pipe and get it back into the stove. Um, 
yeah, so that was problem one. Yeah, so we, we kind of managed through that and then decided to make the call is just use these leather gloves and get this this stove out of here before it causes us any more grief. And the weather was just continuing to ramp up from there. And I remember Clay laying there holding on to those rope guy lines, almost like flying a huge kite, laying in his sleeping bag while we were sort of dealing with that, just holding the, the top of the tent down. Yeah. So got that stove out and I sort of went out to get the stove out and sort of squared that away and put some rocks on it so it wouldn't blow away in case we needed it get in the future as the storm passed and we needed to dry out came back in the tent we all sort of got back in our sleeping bags and we're all sort of sitting there and the gusts were just increasing more and more to the point where one just hammered us and it all made us actually sit up and get out and sort of grab onto that rope with clay and hold onto that pole and we're all sort of looking around you can see we're all thinking the same thing like okay we've sort of know where our our pup tents are and we're ready to go but it's pitch black at this point it's white out blizzard conditions like if this tent blows off us right now or fails what's that going to look like for us so we sort of all sort of came to the same idea i think at the same time as hey we should at least set one if not both of our pup tents up in this bigger teepee shelter in case it does fail at least we'll have secondary shelter ready to go like right now yeah and transition our sleeping bags and everything that needs to stay dry into those right now because if this tent flies off like we're just gonna be right into exposed blizzard conditions like right now so yeah and trying to set up our tents and and one of the one of the risks we had is we, we have our, these pup tents but they do need a couple of pegs especially especially if it's blowing 70 yeah um and we've used up all our pegs double double pegging out our 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 um this this uh tp tent and like and like i you know i i have to say i was just i'm still continuing blown away by the 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 resiliency of this tent in these conditions and i but you know throughout this whole thing we had no idea because i i've never i've never been exposed like this you know in i mean some conditions close to this when skiing and stuff but uh, but nothing like this, certainly in this tent, to know what's happening. Oh, there's our old friend, the wind, coming back. Um, and um, so yeah, so I, I we did we just had no idea what what to expect if this whole panel would rip out or how you know these things it's new to us. So we'll, we'll be giving a real good review to our to our friends at sea because you know yeah, this after. thing's gone the distance for two straight solid days of pretty sustained blizzard conditions. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah. Okay, so so anyways, we ended up with, we ended up setting up that one tent, uh, my tent first, and then we, I think we did we did shifts, so we got a couple guys into the tent for like two hours sleeping shifts, but the other guys just managed the, like held the pole and held the the guy lines down, and then every once in a while there'd be a blowout on one of the pegs, and have to go outside and, um, rain, you know, put this put your rain gear on and go outside and re restake out one of the corners of the tent, and then. And after a couple hours, we switched off and did that a couple times and got through the night. Um, yeah, I you know. I I'd say, Alex, have you uh, have you ever experienced anything like that in in any of your mountain climbing experience, or just sleeping through a storm like that? Well, I think I definitely have, but it was different with a TP tent, like because uh, it was so high, you know. And there's a, you know, we don't usually camp with a titanium wood stove inside so there was that element of comfort but also risk when it was that windy so um 
I guess back to your question there. We've been in windstorms like that, but uh, that was a long one. That was like, I'd say 24 hours plus, because you're mentioning we made it through the first night, taking shifts on managing uh, the center pole, which is like an inch in diameter. Like you can sort of picture that TP pole going up. Yeah, aluminum pipe. It's the yeah, center. 10 foot aluminum pipe. Um, but that didn't, you know, once daylight struck, it was still as stormy throughout the day. It was a little more comforting because you could um, see you had daylight, but uh, yeah, that was a long one. So it's nice to have this sort of break in the weather. It's still, you know, we've got at least 10 centimeters of snow outside and then some areas it's like three to four feet of drift. Yeah, yeah. But at least you can go outside and and look around a little bit and uh yeah it's been a long couple of days for sure yeah totally. we, we, i think we gained a bit more confidence uh as sort of we got through that first night and, and got through yesterday and the tent seemed to be holding without a lot of help from us like that first night we we went in shifts like holding on to rope and holding on to that pole for dear life at some points it felt like and and uh, as it continued to blow, we just gained more and more confidence in the tent, I think. So last night was another pretty windy, rough night, but we were able to sort of have a bit more faith in the in the setup and and actually just crawl into our tents and try to get some consistent sleep as opposed to the two-hour watches we were doing that first night. Yeah, well, well by now, too, we, we so we by, by the end of, I think, I think we ended up, we ended now. Now we have two pup tents set up inside of this TP tent, and we're we're just have basically you know laid out on our therm rest here for the past I don't know thirty six hours now, um, and we're basically whited out again today. The winds have come down to I don't know a consistent twenty kilometer twenty five kilometers an hour, which is which is tropical by comparison to what we were dealing with the last couple of days, but it's kind of unhuntable too. Like there's nothing. That where we are, we're we're up in the Alpine, and we're um, it's kind of anywhere you go, you gotta. There's these sort of moraines everywhere, like big big bouldery moraines where, or even just rubble that's fallen off the side hills. And in any event, just trying to net like it's it's challenging mentally and physically exhausting in the best conditions just to kind of hop rocks to get places. And um, and when we had the rains, that our, our safety risk would go up because now these big boulders are are slippery in addition to being they you know if they slip you slip and fall it's one thing if one of those rocks shifts it's another terribly scary thing um and now you have the element of a of a snow pack on top of that um yeah i don't i just we can't really hunt there's just nowhere to go so let's care we walked right in front of our camp and kind of maybe sort of makes a big grunting sound or some type of a caribou sound to get one of us out of our tent to go look at it i think we're sol on our hunting yeah Clay, were you scared at all during that? Uh, well, yeah, I think there's, I, I don't, I wouldn't um, say that I was scared necessarily, but I was definitely uh, uh, sobered and um, uh, thinking through the, the motions of a, of a plan B. Um, there was, there was some intermediate steps between what you and Ryan had, had already discussed. There were a few, few pieces there where we all, decided it was time to, to gear up. We had our rain gear on, we had our boots on, we had our gloves out. And, um, uh, I, I think there's always, um, 
confidence and um and uh and satisfaction and being proactive and recognizing uh what we might call a flashpoint or a trigger point when we know it's time to to start wor- working on our plan b so i think with with some some experience and judgment and and knowing the crew that i'm with and having a lot of confidence in our pre-planning and our ability to use the equipment um in a way that was appropriate to the conditions that 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 sort of quelled my nerviness and and anything that might be called fear but i was i was definitely alarmed and i was definitely quickened to the seriousness of of these conditions um it's, it's worth reminding people that we're we're out here in the in the alpine we're in the mountains but this is a this is an arctic front that's on top of us here um we're we're just barely what 50 100 kilometers away from the yukon so this is yeah, this, this is, is a big big leagues big leagues arctic storm uh and and I agree with yours and Ryan's earlier assessment. You 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 can and and would for sure uh, die from exposure out here if you if you weren't prepared. Yes. So, oh, sorry, right? Sorry, Clay. Sorry. Oh, I was I was just gonna say I I wouldn't even consider coming on a trip like this if I wasn't satisfied with the the equipment that that we brought um, and the crew that we had and and our ability to to use good judgment about you know how and when to to modify a setup so that it's is not only survivable but comfortable for us so we're um we're at once you know deeply aware of the the seriousness of of the conditions out here we know these mountains will eat us up and spit us out real easy um but but we're also very well prepared and um and and uh, we're working great together as a team and it's it's been a hell of a good time yeah it's been cool i mean i have to say and we should probably touch on that as one of the uh, so th- th- this podcast is going to be a little bit about you know what all the planning that you do ahead of a trip like this so that you, you know, you don't have, you know, a, a tragedy or, or, or you can still main, you know, still survive. Yeah. Survive something like this. Cause this is, this is like, this is crazy. This storm. Like I, I've done a lot of this stuff and I've done it a lot later in the year and uh, I've never experienced anything quite as severe as this. And I, I, you know, I, I, I have rode out some three-day rainstorms in my in my pup tent, and just it just rained and rained and rained. You just basically don't get out of your tent for three days, and and eventually the breaks and it's beautiful and sunny and everything dries out and you forget about it and it's a great story. Um, but this was the exposure here. Like if 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 something had gone sideways, like in that case, it was like you know it was raining and it was like eight degrees out. You know, like I think I would have I could have just got up and walked around and not died. Um, and warmed up whereas this you couldn't do anything if if we had lost our shelter and got soaked to the ass and couldn't um, warm up again um, we would have been exposed to the and I would expect that you know you could easily um, yeah it, it could have been quite tragic so I'll just add to that too Dylan um, one one really important piece in our preparation that we'll get to here quickly is having uh, having comms and having safety overwatch and so uh, there's there's comfort in knowing we have good good two way communication with uh, with our our pilots at Yukon Air and with our safety Overwatch uh, back in Vancouver and experienced search and rescue manager. But one one thing to be really clear about uh, on our side is the importance of self rescue and self reliance out here because we can let people know we're, we're we're into some bad weather, but they cannot do a single thing to help us Nothing. out here. There is no access uh, in the country that we're in. Um, so you're on your own. Um, comms is great. You can let people know what's happening, but you're you're on your own out here. Um, and and we were uh, we were we're, we're still on our that. own. And and we're we're we've kind of arranged. We're, we're for, still on our own. We're still on our own. And we may still be on our own for another five yeah. or six days until there's a window 
to um, come pick us up. So, you know, I think it's super important to, um, to acknowledge, you know, that, so just, yeah, I mean, just so everybody's clear, like, I mean, we, we have, we, we drove to uh, Dees Lake, uh, which is in the northwest corner of the province of British Columbia. And then we flew um, into, uh, into a lake on a float plane, um, you know, 50 miles or something like that, maybe, yeah, it was almost 45 minutes or something of a flight to get in here. And so there's no, there's no walking out. I mean, we're, we're relying on a float plane to come get us. And that float plane can only fly when there's blue sky. Like they don't fly if, if there's fog or, you know, and they, and they, if they have low vis at all. So, um, we, we have, you know, at this point we, 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 we kind of recognize we, we were sort of scheduled to go out. We had sort of four more days of hunting lined up, but I think according to the weather, all of those days are going to be either like terminal rain or one other day of snow today. And then, and then rain for the next couple of days. And, and then, maybe some clear skies towards the end of the week. And so we kind of recognize that our hunt is kind of blown out. So we're basically have given, we between the discussion with the pilot and um, and looking at the, any possible weather, weather windows we're looking to get out, you know, sometime in the next few days. So we might get a text here any minute from our pilot um, through our inReach and, and maybe we'll be packing up. So cut this podcast short. Um, so anyways, I, I wanted to get around to what, you know, I think we should be talking about, which is kind of planning for something like this. And there was a few things along the way that I thought were kind of touch points for planning. I think, Clay, you kind of just sort of brought up one of them, which is, which is when, when doing any of any trip like this, it's, it's, it's important that you have a safety plan in place to, so people, you know, know where you're going and, and know how to help, you know, if you, if you, if they don't hear from you, they can you know, arrange some support and some help to sort you out. And that's always, that's sort of from a search and rescue uh, whether it's a day hike or whether it's a 10 day fly in caribou hunt, leaving a trip plan with as much detail around who's on the trip. Um, that, that's sort of the essential first step. So, so in our case, um, because it's a bit more elaborate than what we're doing, um, we, we did up a bit of a safety plan that included our, the, our emergency contacts at home for the people that need to know what's going on. If there's anything goes sideways or if there's a delay on us getting out of, out of the woods, there's, um, the, our communication devices here. So we've got a sat phone and a couple of in-reach devices. So we have really good comms to get out to the outside world, but having those numbers laid out in our safety plan, the number of the pilot who's responsible for getting us in and out, getting that documented. Um, anything else that went into our safety plan? Yeah. The equipment that we have is an important piece in that. I like for someone who's, who's keeping watch over me to know the, the gear that I have. And that, that typically is the first question that a search and rescue outfit is going to ask if you have a prolonged exposure, they're going to want to know what, what were they wearing? What do they have with them? Do they know how to use it? Do they know how to ration? Yeah. Yeah. So I think Dylan, you included that information in, in our, our documented package that was, that was circulated to, to Rob. Yeah, totally. And then, and then I think Rob's key for this, like, I think it's important to, like we tagged Rob, who's one of, you know, Rob, Ranger Rob, who's been on the podcast before, um, who's, he's a SAR manager and, and a, and is 20 years as a park ranger supervisor with BC parks. Um, so he's the right guy to, to take the lead on managing our land, our, our communications, uh, in the service area, so to speak. So, so one of the things we've been doing, like is we've been checking in with, with Rob saying, Hey Rob, uh, into the storm, running it out. It's all good. So that 
our family and friends who are at home who are probably checking the weather and semi-curious as to how we're doing and hurt uh, this this arctic front that came out of the north which was totally unexpected it's uh, august 15th totally unseasonal uh, uh type of event it's it's big news across the province because it's cold everywhere and and so of course our loved ones at home are like oh geez there's a huge storm in the arctic well we know our, our coming arctic front coming down of course people know about it so so we're checking in with rob then rob's able to communicate that back out to our family um through an email list um, just to let everybody know that we're good we're riding it out so we're checking in with him on that front but what's great about having someone like rob as the point person he's done a lot of these types of trips he knows about you know the the what we're trying to accomplish in terms of the hunt so he can, he can he knows what we're trying to accomplish he knows the gear that we have he generally knows the the mountain country that we're into um, he knows the logistics of flying in and out with a uh, a float plane company and when they can and can't fly and the type of information they need so as we're feeding information to rob he's able to interpret that connect with the pilot look at the weather reports and then help us make a decision based on the information he has as to what we should do next so our, our last comms to rob, rob were like yeah we survived the storm seems like it's passed you know, what do you think we should do? And and he texted back. He said, you know, he talked to the pilot, looked at the weather, says, you know, basically you, you're stuck in your tent for four more days. You might, if you can get out, get out. Um, so he's recommending we look for a fly out, but having that point of contact is great. Now, the reverse of that too, is that if, if things did go sideways and we weren't, you know, we were in trouble, Rob would be the right guy to handle comms for all everybody because he's not emotionally attached to, to us. Like, our, our loved ones are so I mean, he obviously cares about us a little bit but um whereas if if we were trying to communicate through one of our loved ones they would be stressed by you know the potential consequence what could be happening so having someone that's a little bit separated from that i think is good and someone who also has that technical background to know what ne- what the next steps have to be and what information the emergency services need or the pilot needs i think it's a it's it was a good it was a good move and it's been working out really well so far um, we're just going to pause here. So back from a short break, we're, we're, we're all like, like laying on our thermorests in our pup tents and, uh, in the teepee tent, inside the teepee tent. So yeah, basically teepee tent, it's got about 14 square or 14, uh, feet diameter of, of area, which allows for two pup tents and a little area for us to have one bucket to sit on and work a stove. So we're, and you only have enough room for one person outside of one of the pup tents at a time to like either boil water and pass out teas and dinners and then our access to the outdoors to take care of our other needs. Um, but anytime one of us moves, you'll hear the, the shuffling and the sound of the thermorest. So we're every 20 minutes, we're going to have an adjustment break or 10 minutes of an adjustment break. So bear with us as we pause through this and try to keep the nice clear sound for you guys at home. Um, so just we touched on that emergency plan, and I think that sort of flowed into to comms. And uh, Alex, you were sort of saying you've had an inReach for five years, but you just fell in love with it this week. Tell me about your experience with the inReach. Well, the, the first reason I got the inReach was for some of the solo stuff that I do on uh, my enduro bike, uh, where you know in the region that we're in, there is lots of no cell zones. So that was just sort of to have as a check-in. Uh, with my wife if I was out of cell service for the day but you know in the last two years I don't know how long the phone apps have been around but I haven't really used it with the phone app until this week and it's lovely like 
the interface is so much better now. It was it was like texting on an old flip phone before, and now it's it's seamless, you know, through the iPhone um, or whatever uh, phone you're using. But um, yeah, it's it's nice to check in once or twice a day. There's no, it's it's like texting home essentially, just to say hi and you know, they're short messages, but at least there's that connection. And then obviously as things, uh, if there is an issue, essentially we can, I mean, this is what we're using to communicate with, with the, um, the float plane company, which is 75 clicks away. Yeah. Um, you know, we do have one satellite phone, but that's sort of, uh, a secondary unit at the moment. You know, we're not really using it. These comms seem to work great through the inReach. Hey, Rye, at work, are you guys still using your sat phone at work, or have you guys completely gone over to the inReach? I'm, for the most part, we're we're just carrying satellite phones as a backup, I think, for the most part. Um, but for the most part, we're just using inReach devices, texting with our phones through the inReach devices. It's just such a better, more consistent way of communication. Like, sat phones are awesome, because it is nice to hear a human voice on the other end when you need to, but anybody who's experienced with satellite phones know that you know, you typically maybe get a five-minute window at best as that satellite passes overhead before the call is dropped, and then you have to wait and start all over again. So where where the in-reach, you can just text back and forth. There is a bit of a delay still, but at least you're kind of getting solid messages where with the sat phone, you can, you can get cut off halfway through your communication and then wait for that next sat signal call again, almost take you know, five seconds to figure out with the person you're talking to what they heard from the last one before you continue on with your conversation. So, yeah. And, and, and they sort of like, you have to sort of still be cordial when you're on a phone call. Like you gotta be like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? Yeah. I miss you. No, we haven't killed anything yet. Yes. Yeah. No, it's not. But really you just gotta say, Hey, we're stuck in the tent. Can you get a hold of the pilot and figure out when they can pick us up? Yeah. But you can't really do that when you're dealing with a human voice. You still gotta be a bit, you know, cordial. Whereas that, the texting allows you to get that in, important message out and it's a almost a hundred percent confirmed when it you know when it goes out so we, we've pretty much switched over to them completely for our um for all of our parks work and rely on them more because like you said even those sat phones they break down they don't the, the calls break down and, and then you end up having to make two or three calls over a half an hour or an hour to kind of piece together one message the but, important thing to remember though is is though we you switch over and use one device more often it doesn't mean that you should eliminate that other device from your pack. Yeah. So redundancy is, is great, right? So still carry, always recommend to carry, you know, multiple types of communication equipment, as, as many as you can sort of afford to purchase and afford to carry weight ratio on any given trip, right? So Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and you can rent all this stuff. I, I've invested in some of this stuff because I do a lot of it and it makes it a lot safer, but... Uh, um, and uh, and then for you guys who are I mean who are, you, know, you guys all have families that you're trying to stay connected with it's pretty awesome that 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 you're able to do that at a fairly you know fairly it, the the cost is fair for what you guys are able to do for the trip like this so um all right so I thought one thought <laughs> how about this for right now what do you think the experience so so when we were up there on the on one of the ridges uh, looking back across another valley maybe four or five kilometers away and there we, we were spotting for you know critters on that other side of the valley up in the mountains and the only critters we saw was a couple of guys who were setting up their pup tent um up on the side of the hill there in the alpine what do you think life's like for them right now clay what do you think 
Well, you know, we've we've thought of them often over the course of these last uh, 60 hours and, and certainly going into the evening with forecasts predicting continued heavy snow uh, transitioning to heavy rains. And we're we're uh, we're rooting for those guys. We're wishing the best for them. Um, I think anyone that comes out into this country, uh, I hope uh, my assumption certainly is that they're well prepared and that they do have uh, a plan A and a plan B. And some of our discussion has, has been around, you know, that that tension of 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 just initiating the plan B it's it's time to gear up here boys even though it's three o'clock in the morning it's time to deploy these tents and so I sort of wonder what what is their plan B have they reached their flashpoint and trigger point uh, I I don't think based on what we saw that it's realistic for them to hike out of that area um, given the the sheer volume of snow and the visibility um, conditions the, the very real possibility of disorientation um, I, I imagine they they're they're doing probably the exact same thing we are uh, take away the TP tent uh, and take away the the crew dynamic there's four of us here so there's a there's a balance there's a lot of comfort in that um, there's a lot of humor um, but but I sure yeah. hope they're doing okay I imagine they're they're just um they're they're doing the exact same thing we are Dylan and they're probably trying to switch it up with some some jet boils uh, in the vestibule is, is what I hope. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I haven't really had a plan B to go into this with. Like, like you kind of have to have a very solid plan A because there is only one, one, you know, you only get one chance of staying dry in, in the backcountry. So you got to go into it with a plan to stay dry because once you get wet, then you got to retreat. So those guys will be fine. If they're huddled, if they're in their tent and they stay in their mm -hmm. tent and they got into their tent before they got wet and, they can ride it out for quite a while and, and cook it in their vestibule. And as long as they can, you know, have access to some water and now water shouldn't be too big a deal because you just little scoop it up outside your tent. Um, so hopefully they're just, they're just toughing it out. And I bet you they're on the, the, you know, they're, they're on the sending in reach messages to the pilot saying, if there's a window to get us out, you know, looking at the weather, weather ahead, there's just no functional way to be an Alpine hunter in a pup tent in these weather conditions and to be clear there's some distance between the lake we assume they flew in on and where their camp is actually set up so they we're, we're fortunate to be right in an area where this airplane can land close to us um, it's a different story for those guys so as dylan says if they're if they're soaked even one time with you know without a stove uh that that's real that's real serious um because because our plan was to go with this teepee tent with a wood stove and two pup tents with the intention of having a base camp that you know we could dry out in and have a bit of extra food at but then we we would go spike out in our pup tent up in the caribou range and you know spend two or three nights up there until we got soaked and then we come back down to our base camp and dry out um now those guys may well have something like this sitting on the at the edge of the lake set up ready to go for for a treat and for drying out and, and in the past rob and i have done something very similar where we've left a very you know bomber pup tent set up ready to go with a pile of firewood and a big tarp on the lake shore and headed up into the sheep country but we have a if we got soaked we knew if we could get back to camp that we had a, a chance of drying out and a dry shelter to get into and that's been a plan but for your for your plan a i think some of the things that um you know i have on my list here thinking about it is like number one you need to have a bomber tent that you can that can that it'll stay dry under extreme weather conditions so no less than a three season tent um have you had clay have you been through a serious rainstorm in that one 
Yeah, I've had, I'm in a MSR Fury, which is a four season tent. And um, they, they sometimes say that it's really a one season tent. It's built, it's built for this, this weather. And this is exactly why, why I got it. So I've been into it on the, on the West coast through some severe weather. Uh, and it's just been wonderful. Um, I, I, I'm real happy with it. And, and once again, out here, it's, it's been tested beyond anything that I could have imagined. Um, TP, uh, TP insulation, notwithstanding it's, it's doing a great job. <laughs> yeah. Inside of a TP tent, it works great. <laughs> yeah. So we're, and we're in the, uh, the MSR, I think it's called the Elixir, which is, um, sort of built on the hubba hubba model, which is a great two person tent. Cause you have two vestibules on either side of the tent. So if you're living in this tent for a week or so with your buddy, you each have a bit of a, an area to kind of manage your gear and manage your wet gear outside the tent. It also gives you enough space to like, um, you know, run the jet boil inside the vestibule if you're stuck. So it's, it's actually, it's an awesome design for what we're doing. And, and it's, it's been through, um, lots of mountain rains and mountain storms and stayed, stayed dry. So this is, so that's number one is having a bomber tent that you, that you've ridden out a few storms on and you know, all the, all the seams are sealed and, uh, is going to keep you dry. Um, another one that I bring with me is a siltarp. And I bring the siltarp with me as it's in the bottom of my bag and it's kind of an emergency shelter, but it's also, if it does start to rain and you plant, if, if it starts to rain, you should get in your tent. Um, and then if you, if you, if you're not with your tent, then you should set up your siltarp and sit under your tarp until the rain passes until you can make a play to get back to your tent and get into a dry, warm place while it rains. So I think, a, a, and those siltarps are about a pound. The other thing you'll need is to have good rain gear. And we're, we've got, you know, a shell, like a top and a bottom. Um, and again, making sure that like Gore-Tex has a lifespan. Like, so I think, um, I know that my pants are, are shot. They're just not really holding water out for various reasons. And I did bring, uh, my actual, uh, uh, Heli Hansen type rubber rain gear on this trip. Cause I knew that there was a chance of weather like this. So having an impervious rain gear set. Um, actual like West Coast rain gear. What I what I wear fishing when it just rains a lot, um, it would be maybe a good idea if we're stuck like we are now and you need to go out and face the elements. Having rubber rain gear is is awesome. And I think I think if I'm doing this again, then I don't know. I I don't know if I'm even bother with Gore-Tex. I might just bring my rubber rain gear and and have that as my as my survival rain gear. What do you think, Rye? Yeah, I mean, like you said, Ring or Gore-Tex has as a as a shelf life and I mean it's it's great. It's a great fabric. It's a great technical fabric, but it there it certainly has its limitations and you know, being out for a, a day or so and or being out on a on an expedition where you got dry sort of snow conditions, I think it's a really good technical gear. But anytime you're going to have moisture for longer than a, you know, half a day period, I, I just don't think it it stands up. Yeah, it makes, you need that uh, just rubber coated, that stretchy light Helly Hansen Hansen jacket. Well, yeah. So I what, mean, the jacket, the Gore-Tex jacket I brought on this trip, we thought it was going to be sufficient. And clearly, like after the first day, it, it proved not to be. And I've been using that that rubber stuff to stay dry moving forward. So. So we had a long walk back from one of our along along the lake here, which is kind of brushy and you know, walking through, yeah, just like willow and, and it, it had started raining and then all the willow gets saturated. So every time you walk through the willow, it basically paints water across you, right? So it's pushing moisture through your 
your, your Gore-Tex layer and eventually it just Gore-Tex gives up and the moisture gets in and you wore that rain kit back the, the rubber rain kit back I was wearing my fancy pants Gore-Tex stuff and I was pretty much soaked um, my jacket was good but my pants were, were, were done um, but you you were just managing sweat I guess at that point like yeah but I was I was pretty much bone dry when we got back to camp or the day before when I had wore the Gore-Tex, I was, I was pretty wet and had to manage. Thankfully we had the stove to dry off, but yeah, um, but yeah, you just have to be cognizant as, as Gore-Tex is great cause it breathes. So it allows that perspiration to sort of escape, but, uh, in the rubber it doesn't. So you just have to slow down and manage your body temperature. I think if you're going to go with the, the full rubber rain gear, it's just be cognizant that it's, you're going to sweat and tra- trap your body moisture. Yeah, yeah. Which in the long run, I mean, it's six one half does of the other, but the water's pouring through or you're managing your sweat. And I think it's easier to manage your sweat by, you know, taking off some of those insulating layers and just slowing down and managing how hard you're working. Yeah, because at, at that point, it's secondary how hard you're I mean, you almost could just sit there and wait out the rain. I mean, yeah. you, you know, or, or just slowly walk back to camp in your rain gear and not sweat it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if I had right now, if I had if I had to go with one or the other, I would go with my with my that that newer stretchy rain gear from I think it's Helly Hansen that makes it. I'm not sure. Yeah. But um, and uh, just buy it. It's kind of oversized so that you can get it over all your gear and uh, still have enough sort of. I like the oversized rain gear because it still allows for some airflow around your body. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's that definitely. And that stuff's not overly heavy. Like it's not adding a lot of real bulk or weight compared to your Gore-Tex, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, next time I come to gas here, it's for sure that's going to be in my pack. Um, all right. So the other one I got here is good boots. And we had sort of various boots on this trip. And um, how are your feet, Al? Right now they're great because I'm uh, in my sleeping bag, but I definitely had the lightest pair of boots out of the four of us on this trip, and it it was a little toss up. I I should have brought, so I've got fairly, it's like three quarter, um, Shank? waterproofing. Oh yeah, uh, Keen boots that are that are definitely comfortable. I struggle with with really really rigid uh, boots, heavy boots. So I chose the Keens, but I think in hindsight, like bringing my low, uh, full Alpine Vibram sole boots would have been the ticket for this trip, and maybe even both if there if there wasn't so many, if there wasn't such a weight constraint. I think, you know, a second pair of boots might have made sense. And right now I'm you know thinking about if we had like one pair of rubber boots that you could use just to get like a pair of bogs just to get in and out of the tent and just share them. I think that would have been a nice, nice little luxury item to have. Yeah. As well. Not knowing that we were going to get, you know, snow drifts of two feet or whatever, but that would have been a nice uh, little luxury item that people could use to go down to the lake as well and do some fishing and just, they're like moccasins, you know, they're bone dry and warm. And, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, footwear is so important, and I think that's been that was my my weak link on this trip. Yeah, sure. it's definitely helped held you up a bit. But on the other hand, it's been we've been able to to make that work too. But it's limited, you know, where you can go and how hard you can go. Because yeah, um, Ryan, what did you do to prep your boots? Yeah, I mean, I I got fairly decent boot that I've been wearing the same type of boot for over a decade now. 
been really happy with it, super comfortable. But I do a lot of prep in my boots leading up to any sort of multi-day trip, whether I'm going moose hunting or, or this sort of trip or whatever. You know you're going to get weather. You know that how important it is for your, your feet to stay dry. So having a good sort of solid leather boot, I find that the least seams in a boot, the better. So finding a boot that's almost just one solid piece of leather is, is as great as it can get. Uh, Gore-Tex lined, obviously. But you need to... Once you buy that boot and wear it a few times, you need to look after your boots. So leading up to a trip like this, like I started a week prior to our our departure date, waxing and greasing my boots every day, a couple times a day. And I'm, I'm lucky I live in the Okanagan. It's, it's warm out, so it's perfect um, boot grease and weather. You can put a layer on before you go to work, sort of leave it out, not in direct sunlight for the whole day, but just outside so it gets those warm temperatures opens up the pore in that leather and, and it really allows it to suck up that that wax or oil or whatever it is you're you're using but i probably over the course of a week put 10 plus coats on my boots so when when we arrived here then my leather was ready it was in good condition but ready to to resist the water that we've experienced over the trip and my boots are still they're starting to get a little damp on the inside but i think that's just the general condensation um, sort of stuff we're dealing with inside the tent at this point and it's not a result of leaks in my boots and stuff like that so yeah for sure that's still comfortable to put on when i need to go outside and my socks aren't getting soaking wet when i'm putting my boots on which is pretty important yeah for sure wet feet it's not happy and, and you can't dry your boots out in a place like this even with i mean we just we're just not creating enough heat um and you can't like never put your boots by a fire to dry them out. That'll just shrink them, burn them, melt them, or shrink them. Most people have a story about that. They've been doing this a long time. Um, so your only chance of drying your boots out if you happen to have a bunch of newspaper and uh, on your hunt, and you can stuff them full of newspaper, and that'll draw out the moisture into the paper. And if you sort of cycle dry newspaper in, um, you know, over over an evening, you might be able to suck out most of the moisture, but once your boots are wet, man, they're wet. Particularly up here in the Alpine, you just nothing you can do once they're wet. So prepping them, greasing them up a ton before you go, getting trying to get them to suck up six or seven coatings of grease, and then having that Gore-Tex layer as as the backup, um, it should get you through a, a trip like this. I think in the larger care category of foot care too, Dill, we've talked <laughs> a lot about um, uh, some of the accessories. So we're all running Crocs or Gators uh, for some extra protection. Um, well, yeah, and, gators. and we've also, uh, had a lot of talk around, um, fresh socks as an essential piece of equipment. So being able to put on a, a new pair of, uh, merino wool or thick wool socks, depending on the weather conditions is, is really a game changer and a necessity out here. Uh, oh. and the final piece on that is having a bit of a foot care kit that might include anything from toenail clippers to, uh, moleskin and band-aids for blister treatment. We've had a little bit of that out here as well, which is obviously exacerbated by the wet conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one uh, important thing is you, people go out and spend lots of money on boots, or hopefully they do because they're a pretty key piece of equipment, so having solid boots. But like I said, having dry socks is, is great and a few extra pairs, but having good quality socks is a key thing too. So make sure that if you're going to invest in good footwear that also means investing in in good quality socks don't 
don't uh, buy cheap socks to go in your four hundred dollar pair of hiking boots because yeah, it, you, you won't like the result in the end. So yeah. buy good quality merino or whatever, whatever you go with, just ensure that they're going to be good quality socks that are going to work for you. And again, it like with anything, you should test it close to home before you bring it out in the field. So ensuring that your boots are well broken in and you've done some some trips on them that aren't multi-day trips that, you know, you can go home at the end of the day if you end up with a bunch of blisters and take care of them. Um, and same with the socks, go for a hike in them ahead of time and make sure they're going to work with, with your feet and your boots before you get out here for, on a 10 day trip like this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I buy these, uh, I buy two pairs of new socks for all of these for, for hunting season at the beginning of the season. And I got, so they're nice. They got lots, still have a little bit of padding in them and they're still, they're ready to go. Uh, but they're a double, they're a double layer sock. So it's almost like having a liner inside of a sock, um, which is nice. If you, if you run a liner, then, then some of the friction of, of the sock or your foot sliding back and forth, instead of rubbing on your foot, it rubs between the liner and the outer layer of the sock, which can really help reduce some um, blisters. So keep it there. Yeah. They're called a, I think they're called the right sock or a double layer sock, but they're, uh, they're great. Um, I've lo- they've been a game changer for my backcountry skiing for sure, where I used to have blistery feet all the time. Um, but if I do feel a hot spot starting to develop, I just stick a piece of before it turns into a blister. I just stick a piece of duct tape over top of it, and that seems to really help reduce the the uh, the spot from heating up and turning into a blister. Anyways, we can talk about blisters all night. Let, let's get down the list here. We're, we're coming up on an hour, and we want to get our uh, weather report to our pilot here. Um, the one I thought we talked a lot about is, is shelter pla- placement and configuration. And um, Ryan, when we were sort of psyching out our spot here, well, one thing to recognize, we, we flew into an, like a lake that's actually in the Alpine, which really limits, um, you know, where you can, or so, well, it, it, it really heightens some of the concerns around exposure. Um, you know, I, if I'm ever, you know, obviously I want to, ideally I'd want to camp inside of trees where um, you've got the benefit of, uh, the the um, trees acting as a, a windbreak um, and something you can tie to um, just to, this way less weather when you're down in the trees now we're, we're up above the tree line so we're super exposed um, what are some of the thoughts right that we had when we were sort of laying things out yeah when we first sort of landed and started walking around to sort of figure out where we we're going to set up we sort of we're talking about what what would be the the likely direction the wind would come from sort of the first thing and then how to get into that lee of that so using the the topography of the land around here to find some sort of just natural wind breaks or depressions that would get us out of the full brunt of wind and sort of orientating our camp with that you know recognizing there's not a lot of trees or any of the trees around here are only about three feet tall <laughs> so they're not offering uh, much of a windbreak so just uh, looking at the topography and using just the land topography to sort of pick a spot to to put our shelter in and hopefully make the right call on the most likely direction that the wind was going to come from. And, and we were bang on for the first like four days because yeah. we sort of anticipated coming down, you know, up the lake from the west. And it certainly was. So the other thing is to configure the tent. So orient, most tents are sort of designed to be oriented into the wind, I think. Like there is a direction that they're, that they're most stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the case of the TP tent, it's sort of circular, so it's a bit different. But we probably wanted to, maybe we probably would have wanted to have our door slightly configured, um, you know, away from the wind because we were sort of 
it was kind of taking it on the side and it would open up every time we unzipped it. Um, and then we, of course we had a wood stove and you want to have the wood stove. So ideally so that it's, so that any of the embers and stuff are blowing away from the tent. Um, and, uh, so those are sort of the door access. Of course, probably don't want it right, you know, down into the, facing into the wind. That'll cause you some problems. And, uh, I don't know. That was one thought. Yeah, and when we're also picking uh, where to set up, we were looking, trying to find some relatively level flat ground, and then ground that's sort of elevated that you know is going to drain properly. If we do get rain, you don't want to be in a de too bad of a depression or an area that looks like you know yeah, would gather water. or has gathered water in the past. Yeah, the nicest spot is just above us that was sort of had all the it was sort of sheltered and it was flat, but it was kind of like almost like 270 degrees around this flat spot there was a slope leading down to it so and right now now there's you know probably a foot of snow on that whole bowl and when the rain comes it's just going to all wash straight down underneath the tent so fortunately we picked a spot that has a little bit more of a drainage on all sides of this little tiny plateau that we're on i guess you could say um, so it should be a lot better than what we could have potentially been up against um, the other thing we chatted about, so once you got your sort of tent configured out of the wind and on a flat spot, um, the other thing I have done in, in places like this, like, you know, sometimes you can't find, um, flat spots. So you might want to, you can find somebody that has all those other attributes and it's probably more important to have those other attributes than be exposed. So you can always like, you know, build up if there's some, you can look for some, you know, I wouldn't want to say this if you're in a park or, you know, wouldn't need to disturb the ground or minimize your disturbance, but you might be able to find some moss or something to tuck in uh, to, to level out your sleeping area a little bit. So you can have a comfy sleep and if it's a bit rocky or, or a bit on an angle, um, you can sort of yeah, borrow some moss and then suck stuck it underneath your, your tent. But don't do that if you're in a park, though. One thing we also talked about when picking our our spot is is looking around here. There's... There's a number of sort of well-defined game trails that you can see that the wildlife is utilizing to come up and down the valley and through these passes to get from one valley to the next through the mountains. And we're in grizzly bear country for sure here, and they're going to use those game trails like the caribou and wolf and any other critter around here is going to take the easy route. And uh, typically they're all, all walking along the same trail. So we wanted to make sure that we chose a location from for our tent and our our hangout spot that wasn't going to be right on or beside one of those trails so as wildlife does need to move up and down the valley we're going to be set back from their their travel route so if a grizzly does walk walk up the lake shore here he's not going to walk straight into our tent um, he'll pass you know 50 100 yards away from us which puts us at a, a better safer distance than being right on top of the trail that he's walking down yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah, so, you know, even you don't want an ungulate tripping over a guy line and then getting wrapped around its foot and freaking out and then tearing your whole tent off. Lots of pretty scary for sure. So yeah, being up and away from those high, high use areas is critical. Um, the other thing we spend a lot of time with this and we're struggling with right now is, is guying out the tent. So you need to, anytime you're in Alpine, you want to make sure you got your, your tent as well staked down and then you want it to guy out. And the I think one th that people miss out on is the importance of airflow in these little pup tents. I mean, you do need it. Air needs to get like we, you produce a lot of um, heat and moisture uh, as a human inside your little tent. 
and all that creates condensation on the inside of the tent. Um, that's one of the tricky things with the single wall tent um, that like this TP tent is it produces a lot of moisture on the inside uh, because it's our body heat is it's condensating on the inside of the wall creating moisture and that moisture runs down and eventually back onto our gear and whatnot so it's a so same, same with a, a little pup tent so on a two-layer pup tent ideally that condensation is collecting on the inside of the of your fly so if you guide out properly it should stretch it out so that the moisture runs down and away from outside of your of your footprint and then if there's any kind of airflow passing through it should suck a lot of that moisture out before it con condenses uh, or condensates i should say so um i see that a lot when people will set up their tents they just don't don't set up so that the fly is away from the main body of the tent and uh, I think that causes moisture problems. So you guys are dealing with that over on your little pup tent right now because you can't really guide out. What's it like inside the your, your tent right now for moisture? It's not terrible at the moment, actually, but through the night it gets it gets worse because the temperatures drop, so that condensation happens a lot more. And we've sort of got a lot of sort of the front door wide open right now, which is allowing a lot of airflow. But obviously at night you got to close that up, so the condensation was a lot lot worse at night but we're drying out pretty good now but not being able to, to set the tent up inside this tp tent like it's supposed to is is causing a bit more condensation problems than we would if we were able to really guy out the the fly properly yeah totally so yeah now if you the other thing about these tents is and you got to be careful about it, it's like if you do push up against the sides of your tent you're gonna draw water in into your sleeping bag and whatnot so it's important to um yeah but basically keep from pushing up against it with your with your foot what well, one trick i use is i sometimes stick my rain gear down around the foot of my my sleeping bag and kind of create a little bit of a impervious wall from the so that if my foot's pushing against the bottom of the tent at least it, it that that, that uh, rain gear is keeping me my sleeping bag from sucking in moisture off the off the uh, end of the tent or down around the floor and stuff so a bit of a trick um, I think we're getting through most of our notes. Starting to get a little bit lighter here. I think I think one thing uh, that's come in really handy on this trip is a good repair kit for your gear. So having something to repair tears in tents and burn holes and sleeping bags and <laughs> is like... everything that we've sort of experienced because you start losing the integrity of your your sleeping bag because a stovepipe lands on it or you know we've had a a bit of a tear and in, in or burn in clay sleeping bag as well and and uh, a tear in the teepee tent and having the proper patching equipment for that sort of stuff is key because you start having gear failures and you got a few more days to weather out a storm and you can't fix stuff is pretty critical yeah we've used up about a, a you know a mile of that uh of, of uh of our rope our little cord that we brought in mm -hmm. and uh we guide out this tent and and setting up our our other little tarp for our spot and tarp up the hill there and yeah. we also have repair equipment for uh thermarest fails dylan which you had sort of anticipated early in the trip too we we tried to think of what could fail and how how critical is that and can we fix it so our our pre-planning is uh proven to be pretty slick for for this adventure so far yeah for sure i mean we did i think our plan like i think we were thrown about as shitty of possible conditions here like 
and I don't mean that to be dramatic at all. Like, I mean, I that's a statement of fact. This is a <laughs> legitimate Arctic blizzard that's lasted 70 hours. Like, I've been in a state of like, 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 I, I haven't relaxed. This is the first, like, you know, it's funny about this. So, so it was like 70 hours ago, we were tucking into our, our nice warm teepee tent with the, with the wood stove on. It was raining pretty hard out and it was getting windy, but we were tucking in for the night and we were going to do a podcast on, you know, planning to stay dry in the backcountry. And we had just laid out the, all the podcast uh, mics and cables. And then all of a sudden that gu- first major gust hit. And the next thing you knew, the podcast machine was piled up in the corner in a ball of wires and everybody was up with their clothes on. Um, yeah, <laughs> went from laying around our long underwear in our sleeping bags to like stuffing our yeah, getting up, putting our clothes on, stuffing our sleeping bags back into our dry bags to keep them dry. And then we were like, okay, no podcast. We got to get to action. And that sort of state of alertness and anxiety and like um, awareness uh, has lasted until about now. Like we've been all been on point to try and make sure that we're doing everything we can to ensure that we don't have a failure because uh, the margin for error here is just so incredibly low. Like if, if we we just we, we may not get out for four or five more days and if we're wet soaked busted gear failed gear we could be in a, an emergency situation that we can't do nothing about um until we get that ride out so you know I, i've got two two follow-ups on that bill when, sure go when you're ready the first the first one that you touched on is is being able to recognize when it's it's time to be really seriously situationally uh, aware and to maintain that and part of situational awareness is is the reassess so we've done a great job reminding each other of of how the conditions that we're set up for now uh, we know that those could change again at at any minute the heavy snow could to turn to heavy rain we may be out of here this afternoon we may be out of, out of here friday so we're constantly reassessing our situation and and pre-planning what what uh, priority actions need to be addressed uh, in what order, and that's that's been really effective on this crew and, and is integral. Whatever conditions you're you're preparing to, uh, prepare also for them to change. Is all I'm saying. And yeah. the second piece is uh, is having a delicate balance between that heightened sense of situational awareness and uh, being sobered to the severity of our conditions. Cutting cutting that with humor, which you can really only do with a certain crew. So we we really have been having a great time out here. As Dylan says, you can't overstate the severity of the conditions we're we're fighting. But but we actually are having a really good time out here, and uh, we're trying to keep it light and maintain that balance between our our reassess and our um, having a good time and really trying to enjoy this experience and to learn from it as much as we we can. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, and then I just that was kind of one of my closing thoughts was like. You know, we're so lucky to have an experienced group of people who can communicate really well and kind of reassess, can take everybody's opinion, acknowledge everybody's anxiety and concern and and fit that into a plan that we can all buy into and and also doing the work. I mean, I just like, you know, I, I this is I take on all the lead on a lot of the stuff like this and I and I end up doing the majority of work because I know how to do most of the stuff. But it's been such a pleasure hanging out with this team of experienced uh, um you know, fellows that have done stuff like this in the backcountry and kind of can take that initiative and deal with stuff and and um, and we distribute sort of that that work that has to happen equally. It's it's been really awesome. So, been having a good time, you guys. It's not quite the skipping across those alpine meadows that we sort of were able to do the first couple of days, and but um, 
certainly, uh, yeah, certainly tested ourselves and we'll have a story to tell. And remember the time that we flew into the Cassiar Mountains and uh, spent a week in the tent. But anyways, we're alive for now and uh, we're certainly warm and dry and in our bunk. So feeling very fortunate. And uh, certainly our thoughts are with that other crew and others that are Absolutely. doing stuff like this. Because I, mean, I know this stuff is, um, I know there's a lot of other groups out there that are that are stuck in the w- woods. And I hope that they've, that the timing and their plan of those all worked out. And um, I, I do want to, <laughs> we'll be, we'll be asking the pilot. I'm sure they've heard from that other couple, the other couple of fellows that are on the hillside. So we'll, we'll be curious to get a stash. Huge, of huge shout out to these pilots as well, Dylan. Uh, these guys are real warriors and, and we appreciate their work. Yeah. Yeah. They're good. Yeah. And they're seemingly keen to come get us. And so I think we're going to get up and get them a, a weather forecast and we'll probably try and check back in with the podcast uh, with one more with this group before it's all said and done, but hopefully it's been helpful and talk to you all later.